and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. The Octomom scattered eight Octobombs all over the city. I don't know if that means eight bombs or 64 bombs, but either way, it's going to be a pain in the ass. What's this? This is the Non-Adventures of Wonderella. Oh. An amazing webcomic. I really should sit down and read this one. Anyway, this is a comic book podcast, supposedly. Uh, brought to you by the fine folks at Seaquartz, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, uh, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seaquart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. So, shall we go on to the news? Let's. Not a lot has been going on over the last two weeks, but there was a few, you know, there are a few interesting points that are worth talking about. I want to start with the 2016 Harvey nominations. Oh, you remember last year's Harvey nominations? I do. And I have to tell you that I am still really weirded out at what's going on here. Mm. Because basically what happened, and I'm going to talk a little bit about like some of the categories that caught my eye, but overall the thing that's been getting attention is the fact that Valiant got a huge amount of nominations. One third, over one third of the nominations, 50 from 142 nominations is Valiant. Now, here's the thing. I have to be honest here. Like, I like Valiant. To be completely honest, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if you compare them to, say, DC or Marvel, in terms of superhero fiction specifically, they're probably the most put together, right? Right. They have their occasional crossovers, but the line isn't bloated. They don't really have the same kind of creator rights problems that Marvel and DC have. In terms of overall cohesion, I can see the argument that that they're probably the best on the shelves. At the same time, it's hard for me to see any legitimate rationale for why they are dominating these awards the way that they do. They're good, but they are not that good. Yeah, two things. One, the Harvey is not the best superhero award. It's supposed to be for all of comic book. It's the Emmys to the Eisner Oscars, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. And two, as Ed Piscor, the guy who does a hip-hop, hip-hop family tree, said in response to these nominations, yes, they're good, but good is the enemy of great. Mm, I don't know if I would agree with that. Like, there is room in this industry for stuff that is just okay, or stuff that is just good, but to award them? I mean, let's, let's look at some of these categories, because it really is a situation of, like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> so, for example, best new series, right? Here are the five nominees. You've got Archie for yeah. Archie Comics. Understandable, right? The reinvention of Archie by uh, Wade and Staples has been significant. It has brought these properties into a different level of discourse where people weren't talking about them the way they're talking about them now. Giant Days from Boom, or Boombox, I should say, right? Also highly significant. This is a book that has made a transition from web comics and has been successful enough to become an ongoing Paper Girls from Image Comics. Brian K. Vaughn was going to factor into this somehow? Fine. The Vision from Marvel Comics. Tom King is doing transformative work with this character, right? Right. These four, and then all of a sudden, Bloodshot Reborn from Valiant Entertainment. Now look, I you know that I like Jeff Lemire. Bloodshot Reborn has nothing to do on any level with these four, right? Like, I don't understand the nomination... Best Domestic Reprint Project includes Crimson Volume 1 from Boom and then Everything Valiant, including 
three volumes of Quantum and Woody by Priest and Mark Wright. Now, I like Quantum and Woody. I like Priest and Bright, but really, volumes one, two, and three all belong in the nomination? It's ridiculous. Best continuing or limited series. Let me run you through this, Tom, because it is crazy. Mm-hmm. So, as we said, Giant Days, right? Understandable. There are two Image Comics books here. There's Saga, of course, and Southern Bastards. Fine. And, and Bitch Planet. Bitch. Oh, sorry, I didn't even notice that. Bitch Planet is there, too. Marvel Comics, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Again, understandable. Valiant has four titles for best ongoing. And and look at what it is that they nominated. Bloodshot Reborn, right? Again, Ninjak. <laughs> Are you serious with this? Book of Death, which as far as I know was a crossover. Not that that's good or bad, but just, you know, that that's what it was. And Divinity, which I think we read and had no idea. No, no, no. Uh, well, I didn't read Divinity. It actually got some very good reviews, but... The problem with this is not, you know, not to signal out a specific book and say, well, you don't deserve there because your name is Ninja, because I don't know, I haven't read Ninja, could be really good. It's, it's Matt, it's, it's Matt Kint, right? I really like yeah, Matt Kint. It is Matt Kint, but it's like, mm. even if the, even if the quality of the book were such that it could stand toe to toe with these other titles, the fact that there are four Valiant books competing not just with other titles, but with each other. Mm-hmm. Seems completely insane. It's a problem not not with the books and not even with Valiant. Well, a little bit with Valiant. It's a problem apparently with the structure of the Harvey Awards nominee process in which professionals, and professional is every single person who works on a comic book, a letter, a painter, an artist, whatever, can vote. And it's apparently a friend brings a friend. And Valiant has a very... They have a very good structure within the comics and they have a very good structure outside the comics because... They vote for one another. And a right. small block of people can sway the votes. It's a bit like the Hugo Award for science fiction. And a huge oh, problem man. over the last two years because a very small contingent of people pretty much voted for one another and swayed all the nominations. Now, yeah. it's not exactly like the Hugo Award because these people were terrible people. You know, racist, yeah. xenophobes, chauvinists. The valiant people... Yeah, the Valiant are not like that. No, like, and that's really something that at the very least, I guess we can say, it's not that any of these books are bad per se, or that the talent that Valiant is promoting is in any way, like, I mean, the thing with the Hugo Awards might not have even gotten the amount of attention that it gotten if they weren't all insane white supremacist racists. That was kind of a thing. You know, that's the sort of thing where you'd be like, um... And they they nominated crap. Maybe not, yeah. you know. Okay, the Yuga Award thing actually is more comparable to if, I don't know, the Harvey Award nominations were one-third Xenoscape? And the other one-third Dave Sim. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you know, like, if it, were, if it were supporting people whose ideology is expressed through their books in, like, very blatant and offensive ways, that would be something else. Now, it's even... Like here, Sorry. Even if Valiant doesn't end up winning most of these nominations, and some of them they have to win because they swap a full category, the award itself, you know, this big thing which is supposed to impart a sign of quality becomes meaningless because people will say to, I don't know, Bitch Planet, uh, good for you, you've beat out Ninjak and Book of Death, instead of, oh, you've won an award. Yeah, it's sort of... I mean, anything that Valiant would win at this award would be questionable simply because you're flooding all the categories. You're going to walk away with something. Yeah. You know, and then, like, look at, for example, the the best writer category, right? 
So you have Jason Aaron for Southern Bastards, Brian K. Vaughn for Saga, Mark Wade for Archie, and G. Willow Wilson for Ms. Marvel, and then you have Jeff Lemire for Bloodshot Reborn. And it's like, excuse me, Jeff Lemire has done quite a few books this year that would have been worthy of a Best Writer nomination. The Senator is still to... being published. Exactly. Like, why is it, why is he representing Valiant in this category? Why is it Bloodshot Reborn specifically when he has other titles that are still in publication? And I mean, between you, me, and the wall, we both know Descender is a lot better than Bloodshot Reborn. Well, we reviewed it. I really didn't like Descender, but you know, I mean, tomato, potato, or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's also strange because like of these five writers, for example, G. Willow Wilson is the only one who was nominated for a superhero book, right? Southern Bastard, Saga, and Archie are not superhero books. Like if you wanted to create a sense that the Harvey Awards are not just about the capes, it makes sense that you would nominate writers and by extension, the companies that hire these writers for books that are not with the best will in the world towards the Valiant Universe, it's still superheroes, you know? Um, Something should be rearranged because otherwise the Harvey Award just loses its meaning. It's not a prestigious award. It's just the award for people who who have many friends in the industry. Yeah, and that's not something that interests anybody, really. I mean, if you want to turn it into a circle jerk, that's fine, but then there's no meaning to it, you know? Yeah. It's too bad. We'll see how the actual awards turn out. I mean, it's possible that uh, I don't they think might the awards this year mean anything by this point. It, next year, we'll see if they change something in the nominee process. Well, the only way that it would be different is if, despite all their nominations, Valiant doesn't actually sweep the awards. Mm. Because there's also, but then yeah, I guess, but, but then you would say, well, whoever won competed against the lesser opponent, right? Because the really big names, the really the people who deserve to be there, were swapped away by friends who brought in their friends again. Yeah. yeah and again, think, I'm, I'm um, not bad mouthing Valiant. They have a lot no, of good. No, not at books. all. There's some really good talent in Valiant, right? Uh, Elliot Kellen writes there. Michael Kupperman writes there. Uh, like you said, Jeff Lemire, uh, Matt Kind. But with they all, have with strong all the goodwill in the world, even, you know what? Even if it was a company I like a lot more. Even if Image were to dominate one third, I would say, well, something is wrong there because no one company should dominate an award because then the award is tainted. Well, see, that's where I disagree. I'll, I'll tell you why. And I know this is going to sound like I'm an Image fanboy, but I actually have a rationale for this. If Image dominated the Harvey Award nominations, it would at least make sense from a superficial perspective only because they don't do shared universes, right? Saga is a very different book from Paper Girls, and that's a very different book from Sex Criminals or anything else that would win an award. So on the surface of it, right, if you had very different books and very different writers and very different artists nominated for the same awards, I'd be like, okay, it makes sense, therefore, that Image Comics would dominate it. But here, you know, Valiant has only the one universe. As far as I know... All of the books that they're putting out are superhero books, and they are all interconnected, right? Uh, Divinity, Rai, uh, uh, Faith that's coming out now, they're doing another Generation Zero, right? All of these books are all superheroes, and they're all connected. So you don't even have that excuse of, 
yes, it makes sense for three of these books to be nominated for the same category because look at how different they are. The fact that they're being produced by the same company is, you know, it's coincidental. Here it really isn't. It's all just the same universe as being promoted again and again and again. Well, yeah, but I again, I wouldn't want Image to dominate simply because A, it looks bad, and B, even Image with its desperate... You know, with its long line of writers and artists has a style. Would mm-hmm. you prefer Murder on Space Station X or Murder on Space Station Y to win your award? Well, no, I, I agree with that. Like, I see what you're saying. But on the other hand, it would be like, okay, would you want I Hate Fairyland to be nominated or would you want Sex Criminals to be nominated? Like, yeah. even, even acknowledging that Image has several set formulas that tend to repeat themselves... On the, the flip side of that is that they also have books that are very different from each other. Valiant doesn't. That's the catch, I think. Like, even DC, for example, which I did not see represented very often in the Harvey nomination specifically, but that's a different story. Even DC can at least say, you know what? At least we have Vertigo. Like, if you wanted to nominate books that would get attention and critical appeal or whatever, you could at the very least say, yes, we have this superhero universe with 60 whatever books coming out, but at the same time, you know, there's also this line here of books that are very different from each other. Yep. If, if Valiant had that, then maybe this wouldn't be so big of a deal, right? Because then you could say, okay, fine. So Book of Death and Divinity are two completely unrelated projects. They're two different writers. They're two different artists. They have completely different interpretations of how they do things. It's fine. That's not the case. And I think that's, you know, it, like you said, it... it points to a very real credibility problem with the Harvey Awards, because whether Valiant sweeps the actual awards or not, the list looks bad, you know? Yep. At Like, at some point, you start expecting Valiant to turn up as, like, best uh, young adult books, even though they don't publish <laughs> any, and then it would be, like, best webcomic, best foreign creator, Valiant Entertainment. Like, <laughs> what? How is that working? Lifetime Achievement Award, Valiant Entertainment. What? Who Who in Valiant Entertainment? All of them. They all get Lifetime Achievement Awards. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, okay, more on the comics news. We didn't have a good scandal in quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not a good one, it's just a sad one. Artist uh, Ron Wimberly wrote a very uh, cognate piece on his Tumblr about spec pieces, about the tendency of publishers to ask new artists to work on whole pages and do a showcase for them without giving them money back. Like, you work five, six, seven hours doing this thing we wanted. We keep this thing, and if we like you, you get a job, and if not, you get nothing for it. Yeah. Uh, He said, if you're a Marvel or DC or a company like Boom that profits off huge licenses, you should pay for sample from prospective contractors. The hours that an artist spends making a sample are bankable hours. It's work. By not paying for that sample of the art, these corporations are offsetting the cost of their R&D on labor. Artists shouldn't have to shoulder the burden of the corporation's R&D. Mm-hmm. Agreeable enough, uh, unless you're Eric Larson. Well, right. Mm. So Larson went on Facebook and disagreed with the position. Yeah. And he... I'm really surprised at this, but I'm going to say it. I find myself agreeing with some of Larson's points. Well, some, but not most, I would say. Because what Larson argued was that we have to acknowledge that for an artist to present sample pages, 
is just part of the business, right? If you want to be hired for a particular book, just as any job interview, you would need to show that you're the right person for the job, right? Now, writers can do that with a script. Artists need to do that with, at the very least, pencils, I imagine, or sketches or something, right? Now, another thing that Larson said was, okay, once you have these samples that you have drawn, even if you don't get the particular job you drew them from, it stands to reason that you could then use those pages for another job application. Why should companies pay artists for something when they haven't been hired yet? That was sort of the thing that got me thinking. Well, because Larson would say, like, in a hypothetical situation, right, you approach someone like Chip Starsky, you approach someone like... Well, not Frank Quietly, because you'd be waiting until 2018 for the first page to show up. But, you know, you approach any given artist and say, okay, we're considering hiring you for this book. However, we want to see that your artwork is compatible with the tone. The only way that you could prove that would be to submit something, right? Something for consideration. Now, if the tone does not match the book, and you subsequently don't hire the artist, why would you be required to pay them? Because you you don't want them for that job, right? That's the thing that sort of got me thinking that what Wimberly is saying doesn't really make any sense. He's basically arguing that artists should get paid by companies even if they are not hired to do that job. That for the process of the job interview themselves, they should get paid. Well, if you consider it the job interview, I consider it the job. You wasted your time. You worked, like he said, bankable hours. Because an artist doing, I don't know, two, three pages... They're not, though. Could, wh- why not? They're not because the companies said they're not. If I go to my to my physical labor day work, mm-hmm. and we hire someone someone new, and we said, well, for your first day, you're going to be an intern, and then we decide if you stay in or not. And this guy comes in, and he clocks in, and he does eight hours of work, and then the end of the day, we tell him, well, you're not good enough for this. We don't want you. But we still pay him for that for those eight hours because he worked. There's the, a difference, though. I don't. I don't see it like this. What, and I think what I th- Larson said is that the the day that he spends working for you, for example, for physical labor, he cannot take that those eight hours and then use them to apply to a different job. Right? He'll have to work at that different job. Here, what Larson is saying is you've drawn something up as a sample page, right, to demonstrate your aptitude for the job. You don't get the job. You take those samples and reuse them. But by, could... by that logic, you don't need to ask, again, a Chip Zdarsky to do sample pages because, well, you have his former work. You want to see if Chip Zdarsky is good enough for a job, you look at sex criminals. And you say, well... Unless you're not... Unless the project is not like sex criminals. Well, in that case, he would have to redraw sample pages for the new projects because if Marvel tells him, I don't know, uh, we want you to do Spider-Man, he draws them... And they tell him, well, we don't like your style on Spider-Man. Sorry for the last 24 hours of drawing. And then That's he goes right. to, and, but then he goes to DC and DC says, well, we want you to do Batman. He can't use the Spider-Man samples. They, they tell him, well, we want something else. And over and over again, an artist is used. And I'm sorry. I agree with that. A big company should pay for its R&D. And that's what it is. It's an R&D. You so it's a, you, it's a problem of definition. Like, if you see it as R&D, then yes, the company has to pay. If you see it as a job interview, much like any other writer, again, like... The, a, jo- the a job interview here, is some question. It's not eight hours, 24 hours, no. whatever, of physical a, work. And that's a what job drawing interview, is. No, for an artist specifically, a job interview is proof to us that you are the right person for this job. 
And the artist's skill specifically is illustration. Again, the, what they would do with an, with a writer would be hand us a, like you remember at the end of, um, volume one of New X-Men, Morrison's pitch is included in the text? Yeah. So that's what he did, right? He wrote like an eight page or ten page pitch, sent it to whoever was running things back then. I guess it was Casada. And like that was, that couldn't have been more than half an hour or an hour long work. I don't know Morrison's, uh, work process. Whatever that is. But, right, so obviously for an artist it would take much, much more work to do the same thing. But again, this is something that you submit to demonstrate your aptitude. In the same way that a writer submits a script. The unfortunate truth is that artists have to put in more work, right? That much is absolutely true. Like, Wimberly is not wrong that it takes six to eight hours for an artist to do a sample page. Especially if they're putting their best best foot forward which, to which get you, the job. Which you would. Of course. But I have, and again, like it surprises me that I even find myself agreeing with Larson on this, but consider, you know, you're basically saying that for every artist that would apply for a job that they might not be right for, you would have to pay them. Well, yeah. I'm so, I, you don't, I don't know, you don't have to pay the full cost of a page, but you have to, you know they do spec pay spec pay them half the half the amount you would pay for a full page if you were Marvel or DC. But, but you're I'm not sorry. hiring them. Hmm? But you're not hiring them. Why would well, you pay them? You, you might hire them. And I'm sorry, expecting artists to do to work for free is part of this huge problem with the industry in which artists are treated like I don't know interchangeable cogs in a machine. If you're yeah. Marvel or DC, and maybe it's just you know reading more and more recently about artist conditions. And about art artists p- scale paid pays and it's just it's awful because mm. an artist is locked into a project in the comic industry and often he gets a bit over minimum wage and he has to make his living by you know going through from from con to con and hawking original pages or I'm sorry these are the people who move your industry who who make the art treat them better respect the artist. And, uh, and for me, this is just another example of this industry not respecting one of the biggest parts of it. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a movie industry in which actors aren't treated, you know, properly. Which many of them aren't. Well, yeah. And they're uh, terrible for it. I don't it. know. I don't know. I mean, if you take the equivalent of like an actor going into a screen test, should they be paid for the screen test? Right? I don't, well, a, a screen test is more like know. a writer's, you know, one, you know, you come in, you do your half an hour thing. That's still billable hours. Well, half an hour versus again twenty four hours. I don't know hours. if it's half an hour or not. Maybe I don't know. Imagine I mean, let's let's take uh, that whatever that bear movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Eh, do we have to? Well, if 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 the screen test wasn't coming and act, if the screen test was well, be mauled by a bear for the next twelve hours, and at the end of it, after being mauled by that bear, they would tell you, well, you're not fitting, so we're not going to pay you anything. It happens. Mauled by a bear? Well, first of all, I like that you're considering the feelings of, like, the actor and not the bear. How do you think the bear feels, having to work that hard for 12 hours and then go home and eat fish? We kind of lost ourselves. What's the bear in this (laughs) metaphor? Is Marvel the bear? No, I thought the bear was, like, the actual bear in the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. But never mind. Um, I, I get what you're saying. And to an extent, I agree with that. But at the same time... There has to be a middle ground here that I'm just not seeing at the moment. Because I, I think there is a middle ground. Pay them scale. Don't pay full full 
page price, pay mm. them pay them for scale. Maybe, maybe that that might be one way to do it. I mean, the the larger issue is just it also depends on how the selection process works. Like, if you are interviewing a dozen artists for a particular mandated book, it is very hard for me to believe that, you know, and it's because we know that DiDio does this, right? Like, he has competing uh, creative teams. Well, in the case of Marvel and DC, most of them are just the same artists reused over and over again. You don't need to ask, again, a Chip Zdarsky, someone who's well-known, who has a style to do spec pages, because by this point of his career, you should be well aware of what he can and yeah. can't do. But I don't think that Wimberly was talking about established artists specifically well, because, you know, the fact that Eric Larson came in as, like, Image's primary defender, he was probably talking about what happens when you take virtual unknowns and ask them to pitch for a particular book. And these are not people who you would hire based on name recognition, right? It's not Ramon Villalobos. It's not Chip Starsky. It's not uh, Jen Van Mee- oh, what was it? Ethan Van Syver, right? It's not names that you would recognize, like, J.H. Williams, you would hire sight unseen. You would not say, please send me a sample page, right? Yeah. But someone who you've never, you know, someone who's, who comes to you through an open pitch, eh, you would need some kind of evidence that these, that this person is right for the job. I get mm-hmm. it. Like, it's I, I see sort of both sides of this uh, argument. At the same time, I completely agree with you that the conditions of creators for the big two... Uh, I mean, you know, they, the story stories of people like Bill Mandlow speak for themselves. They really do. Like, there is a reason that the CBLDF exists. There's a reason that all of these funds, the Hero Initiative, and all of these charities exist to support, like, industry luminaries, because the companies don't. Which they, they should. Absolutely, and we they shouldn't. should. Absolutely, they should. I, I, they don't because... I mean, and you would have thought that, like, corporate sponsorship with DC and Marvel, uh, sorry, DC and, uh, and Marvel's ownership, like, now that they're being controlled by WB and, uh, Disney, you would think that maybe conditions would change. So far, they haven't. Well, because they pay the, the least they can, right? And I'm sorry, saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling difficulty pitting Marvel or DC for paying, I don't know, $200 for some, for some spec pages or something. Which is well, again, nothing I don't for think... these companies and everything for the artist. That's the thing. I don't think that Wimberly was talking about DC and Marvel specifically because DC and Marvel. Well, he was talking about specifically about DC because was he? It, yes, it was brought about because DC was doing a talent workshop, which is Ugh. get a bunch of new artists, work them out, see who's good, and the rest throw them away without pay. Yeah. Well, that's easy. There's no way around that. Mm-hmm. But you know, it is what it is. Uh, moving on. Speaking of very strange, uh, uses of art, as it were. I don't think it's strange. <laughs> it's a little weird. Boom has signed, I need you to explain this to me, Tom, because I'm, I'm reading this and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Boom has entered into a deal with the World Wrestling Entertainment. Is it, uh, World yeah, Wrestling yeah. Entertainment? Yeah, WWE. World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE, to publish WWE comic books. Why? Uh, well, in a world where Boom publishes the Power Rangers and make a good comic out of it, is, is there really anything yes. else needed said? Yes, because the Power Rangers are fiction. Well, I mean, okay. World well, the WWE, you know, is fiction heroes too. are fiction, you know, it's just actors playing roles. Yeah, the narratives are complete 
fabrications. That much everybody knows. Now, the big, there are two big problems with that. Mm-hmm. The first one is, uh, there, there have been WWE comics before, the most recent of which was published directly via WWE. It was called Super Genius Comics or whatever. Uh oh. Yeah, they were all terrible. <laughs> all of the old WWE comics, whether it was published by Super Genius or before that by Titan or before that by I don't know who, terrible. I mean, my God, Tanma, have you ever seen the level of writing in an average wrestling show? I oh, mean, yeah. yeah, I grew up on those after all. So, what would you expect? My God. Now, there have been good wrestling comics in the past. Uh, Super Pro KO for uh, Oni, was it? It's pretty good. Because they were taking the idea of wrestling as, you know, fiction and running with it. Well, hang on. You're talking about using the sport in a yeah, fictional yeah, sport. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, I'm like Ringside. There is no problem with that. Yeah, Ringside the, does the same thing. Mm, the big problem, I would say, with the WWE is that it's constantly ongoing and changing on a weekly basis. Like, who's the, I don't know, reigning champi- champion mm-hmm. can change from one week into another. And when you do a monthly series about... Uh, John Cena, uh, he's a famous name, he's a big name, I don't watch wrestling Oh, I know anymore. that meme. Yeah, and even I know him. John Cena! Exactly. Da, 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 da. Yeah, exactly. I know that So you, okay. you start a comic, and you start a six-issue arc with John Cena, and four weeks into it, uh, jo- John Cena is dethroned. Or, well, hang on. Or so he we... has a fracture, and he, and he needs to be retired from the WWE. What do you do then? Well, you this is the thing that I need. Comics, a comic, a series, a story that's ongoing and has no relation... To the wrestling that your fans, that the wrestling fans are here to watch. See, this is where I need clarification because I, I mm. read that, like, I do not understand. The, the comics that they are proposing to publish are meant to be tie-ins to the actual show? I don't. Or are they, like, the adventures of John Cena in the mall circa 2020? I don't know. I, I, I would assume so. What are we dealing with here? I really have no idea. The, Are the, 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 the latest these? round of wrestling comics, again, the super genius one, which were terrible, but I've read them anyway because they were free in my shop. Okay. Uh, <laughs> had really weird stories, including a Secret Wars S crossover in which wrestlers met old versions of themselves. So you oh, had a Hollywood Hulk Hogan meet a real American Hulk Hogan and fighting for it. Oh god. Yeah. Which should have been brilliant, but it was really, really bad. That, I mean, that could go either way, I guess. Yeah. But. So, so they basically, they used, you know, they plugged in the personalities and the visuals into weird punch em up stories, which I guess is the best that you can do. Well, see, that approach sort of makes sense because if you fictionalize these already fictional persona, right? Like when you say John Cena, you're not talking about the actual athlete slash muscle man John Cena, right? You're talking about the fictional persona that he puts on when he goes on stage, right? When he goes to the ring. Yeah, you want to do a horror comic starring The Undertaker. Because right. That makes sense. You don't want to do a comics about a guy who punches. You want to do a comics about a guy with a literal underworld satanic superpowers. Yeah. So, see, that I could understand. Mm. The, but, like, it wasn't clear to me based on the announcement from Boom itself as to, like, what are these? Are these biographies? Are these like fictional stories? Is John Cena going to go to outer space and fight aliens? Like, cause, I, I, cause... I would assume, I would assume the latter because the the former is more like Blue Water comics or whatever. Yeah, but but like that's the thing that could go either way here, right? If you embrace the insanity of 
the WWE and deal with these characters as if they are completely fictional, right? As if the, the persona that they play is like the real thing. So like the undertaker really is like this undead, whatever, right? Yeah. If you take that and run with it, I, I can see a sort of way where it would be entertaining at the very least, right? Depending on the creative team assigned, it could be tongue in cheek, parodical or amusing. Like I'm thinking if they, if they did something with like going back to the rocks old persona, like Dwayne Johnson, the way he used to be. Mm. And being like, you know, shouting with like giant word bubbles, it could work. But if they're doing like stories about who they are, it, it was just really unclear. And that sort of, you know, put a huge question mark on this whole thing. Because if you end up making it like biographical comics or whatever, I don't know if there's still an audience for that. Because, you know... At this point in time, first of all, setting aside the fact that, I mean, if you want to talk sleazy industries, the WWE has its problems. Oh, right? oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not even a wrestling fan, and I know that they have a tendency to go on, like, steroid rages and either drop dead or kill other people. Yeah. Right? So, I don't know if you want to embrace the people behind the ring, so well, to speak. It's an in, it's an interesting story, but obviously the WWE would never in a million years sponsor a story featuring the actual exploits of behind-the-scenes wrestlers. Because it is drugs and death. Yes, but if they had that kind of sense in the first... I don't know. Like, it's... It's a really weird situation. Like, the, and part of this is... It's the lack of clarity in the announcement itself, right? Because Boom and WWE came forward with this joint statement that was talking about, you know, oh, we're so happy to be working together. The WWE has this really passionate fan base and we're going to do this amazing series with superstars and storylines. And, um, like they brought out the fact that Boom is an expert at licensed comics, right? Because like you said, they do Power Rangers, they do Big Trouble in Little China, they do... Adventure Time? Sure. And But at no point did they say, this is what we're going to do, right? They put up an illustration of, uh, I'm assuming this is John Cena, right? The Jamal Campbell artwork? Yeah. He's doing like okay signs with both of his arms? Yeah, it's John Cena. Okay, so it looks like the guy. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to infer from that. (laughs) <laughs> it's weird. It, it is such a weird story. It's just gonna be the whole the whole series is just gonna be John Cena busting through walls like the cool lead, <laughs> like the cool lead man. Cool, yeah, <laughs> sure. Why not? That would be amazing if like they want to go full meta. John and, Cena, wall yeah. buster. Like you're reading, and in the middle of it, all of a sudden, like he bursts through the panel. <laughs> it's a Grant Morrison comic. It is. If it's a Grant, Grant Morrison's like, why didn't I think of that? I've always wanted to meet John Cena, famous wrestler. Oh my god! Well, I, it could. I mean, again, like a remake I'm, of Animal Man twenty six with John oh Cena instead of Animal or, Man. What was the name of that? Okay, see, like I know nearly nothing about wrestlers. I know the Undertaker. I know John Cena. I know The Rock. And there was this one other guy who used to fight with a sock puppet. I really have no idea. And the, he wore like this leather mask. Mm. In the in the mid nineties, which was when I was watching them, because I was a kid then, it was called the WWF. It was actually a bit more closer to comics because then wrestlers had, you know, extreme personalities and odd, you know, gimmicks and clothing choices. So you had like the wrestling IRS agent, actually called IRS. Oh god! And you, and you had a guy in a clown costume called Don the Clown. 
Now, these, per- now these personalities were actually a lot closer to, you know, comic book personalities. They were basically living cartoons. Right. The big problem is that nowadays, except from The Undertaker, everybody's pretty much a really big guy who punches stuff. And yet, they have uh-huh. personalities, but they're not cartoonish enough. Right. Hmm. Maybe this is them trying to go back to that. Well, it's going to be interesting. And like we said, it's strange and not yes. really appealing, but it's Boom. Like the, and the Boom has sign. a good history with licenses. Yeah, the warning sign for me here, I'll be completely honest. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know if I'll read it. The big, like, flashing warning sign for me here is the fact that they didn't say what they would be doing. That's usually a sign that, like, they're not sure themselves. Like, we got into this deal. And I don't know what's happening with it, right? Well, see, because some, they some, could have at least said, we're going to do um crazy road trip with John Cena and The Rock. They're going to get into a car and drive to Vegas or something. I don't know, right? They could have explained what kind of books they're going to be published. They didn't. Hmm. That, to me, suggests, like, caution, as it were. Yep. We'll uh, see how it turns out. We might even review it. I don't know. Yep. Any more comic book news? No, but I do have a bit of TV news okay. that concerns me, Tom. I am deeply concerned. Okay. Okay, so Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. recently put out a casting call for two new characters for the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. At first glance and at second glance, it seems to suggest that they're looking to cast Robbie Reyes, ghostwriter, and his brother Gabriel. And I do not know how to feel about this. You know that I loved Robbie Reyes. I loved Gabriel. I loved All New Ghost Rider. But setting aside the fact that I have not watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in a significant amount of time and I have no desire to go back to it, even excusing like bad writing, lousy storylines, all of that, as far as I know, they haven't exactly done well by characters they imported from the comics, right? I've been looking at this list. Deathlock, I remember from season one as being absolute garbage, right? They killed off Victoria Hand for no reason. Mr. Hyde was Kyle McLaughlin, apparently. I don't know nothing about that. So, why Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Like, if you want to do Ghost... First of all, if you want to do Ghost Rider at all, Netflix would seem to be the best fit only because ABC, as far as I know, is still rated PG, right? Yeah. So you want to do a story about a guy whose Satan-worshipping uncle tried to murder his nephews and then his soul possesses the older brother? And I mean, like, what? Have you? Are you paying attention to what it is you're adapting here? What network owns Lucifer right now? Lucifer, I think, is on Fox. Oh. Well, if Fox can actually broadcast a show featuring the devil in a main role, I think we're past the point of people worrying about a teenager with a burning skull. Now, the burning but skull Fox is, is an, an issue. ABC. Mm. Fox, Fox has, I think, a looser... Not censorship, per se, but, like, if you were looking at ratings... Fox could be the place where every now and then you might see something rated R. ABC, as far as I know, doesn't go above PG-13. Well, now, it's, it's not like the comic was the actual all-new Ghost Rider was that violent. It wasn't, but it was also limited by, you know, it only lasted for 12 issues. Yeah. Had it gone on further than that, I don't know what would have happened. Like, it, anything could have... 
popped up. I don't think anything. The big, the big problem for me is again budget. How the hell do you do Ghost Rider on TV budgets? You know, I honestly have no idea. Because he looked awful in the movie, in the first movie, and that oh. was with a Hollywood budget, with a big name actor in the main role. That hairpiece, that hairpiece alone must have cost like millions. Well, I, I guess Robbie Ray's works better than the than Johnny Blaze because he wears like a crash helmet all the time, so you can just. Say, well, he's turned into a burning skeleton, but we can't see it because he has a helmet on, and you just do, I don't know, images of flames popping around his head, which shouldn't be that Well, no, hard. I mean, I imagine, the, I imagine the reason they don't want to use Blaze or Danny Ketch is just, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., much like the rest of Marvel, has had a diversity problem. Hmm. So to cast a Latin American actor as Robbie Reyes would at least be saying, okay, if you're going to introduce Ghost Rider, it might as well be that one. And not Johnny Blaze, who it's, no one has seen since the 1970s and nobody cares. Yeah, but it's a bit of a shame because the most interesting part of the all-new Ghost Rider was that the fact that he was a legacy hero without a legacy and without knowing the legacy or wanting it. Yeah. So if you just put Robbie Reyes as the first Ghost Rider, you lose a lot of what makes the character interesting. It's like yeah, one of, one of the reasons fair. that Wally West really worked as a character is because... He has he has something to live for, something to live up for, a legacy. Yeah, although to be fair, they haven't said it's just a guy. Well, here's the thing, though. Consider, for example, I mean, the the parallel example that immediately jumps to mind because you said Wally West is when you're watching Wally West in the Justice League cartoon, they never say he's the first Flash, right? He could have just as easily had that whole legacy of Barry Allen and all that. It's just not relevant to what you're watching in real time. Like, if they were to introduce Robbie Reyes and make him Ghost Rider, that doesn't necessarily mean he would have to be the first Ghost Rider. You could always say, oh, uh, in the 1970s, there was uh, there were reports of this guy who used to go around on a motorcycle, uh, and, like, maybe there's some connection because you were both wearing, like, flaming skull helmets or whatever, you know? You could establish the backstory of the character without having to be, like... Without actually casting, say, Johnny Blaze. Okay, I will ask you this, because you're the one who actually bothered watching the show past season one. Ugh. If if it is, if they do bring in Robbie Reyes as all-new Ghostwriter, will you be back for, to watching that show? Oh, God. Um, as much as I enjoy the character, what I will do is probably watch his first appearance. and Because I know that his... That, when I go back to an episode, that episode will piss me off and remind me why I don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. anymore. Hmm. So I will go back. I just won't stay. Okay. Uh, we spoke of The Flash, so the other bit of casting news? Yes. Now, I don't know how to feel about this one either. But since I've stopped watching The Flash, it really doesn't matter either way. Tom Felton, probably most popularly known as Draco Malfoy on Harry Potter will be appearing in Season 3 as a regular character. Now, the really weird thing here is that based on the description of the role, they seem to be slotting him in as a replacement for... Uh, what was his name? Eddie from Season 1, Eddie Thon. Okay. Who, who was killed off, and then now they're bringing in this new detective. The weird thing is they got by just fine last season without a replacement, so I'm not sure... Why they're doing this? If you're bringing in Tom Felton and he's not playing Abracadabra, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Yes! <laughs> what's, 
the point. Tom, that was comment of the week. Congratulations. If I, I had I, I a cookie, every, I would send I it to you. I assumed everybody now. making the comment. I'm not a big oh flesh fan, and even I immediately fought, you know, the, the future magician guy. Bravo. Bravo, Tom. That was fantastic. Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems weird that by season three, they're still casting civilian characters who aren't already connected to the ongoing story, right? They're already at the point where they've been dealing with multiple worlds and they've been going like the, the there has been a very strong hint that they're going to do the flashpoint paradox, which seems like a huge mistake because that is not the sort of storyline that one should jump into blindly. But, you know, I'm not running CW, so it's not my place to say. But to start introducing civilian characters again, especially when uh, you you haven't watched The Flash, so you wouldn't know this, but in the second season, they started it out by introducing this cop, uh, Patty, who was meant to be sort of the substitute love interest until Iris woke up. Okay. As one does with romantic triangles, right? It always happens that way. Uh, and she was so annoying, Tom. Like, when you are wishing for a character to get, uh, like, sat on by Gorilla Grodd, you know that you've taken a wrong turn. Like, Gorilla Grodd has abducted Patty. Good, let him eat her. I am done with this character. Um, so now Tom Felton. I don't actually know if Tom Felton is a good actor. Because I've never watched the Harry Potter films, and I don't think he's been in anything else that I would have seen. Uh, he was in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He was okay there. All right. I mean, it's the CW. The, the funny thing is, like, that's probably the highest profile hire that the CW has done, right? Taking somebody from Harry Potter. Yeah. Usually, usually it's, like, unknowns or, like we said last time, survivors of Teen Wolf and Glee. Aiming for a franchise that high, you know, good for them. Right. Uh, that's the news. Shall yeah. we go on to the reviews? Let's. Where do you want to start with? Uh, throwaways? Sure. Throw it away. Throw it away. Okay. So, throwaways number one. This is by Caitlin Kittredge. Art by Steven Sanders from Image. Mm -hmm. Now, I think, Tom, that you and I were both a little skeptical about this one based on the description. It's a bit too much like the Born Identity. Exactly. That, like, I have this in my notes, Born Identity scenario. Mm -hmm. And I think even from the solicitation text when the book was announced, we were both sort of like... Uh, do we really want to get into this? Another story about, you know, secret agents and all that. And I think we both had our fill even before approaching this issue. And I, it, it, it basically sounded like that failed movie from last year, uh, American Ultra. Right. Max Landis' little ego project, which did not work out too well for him. Mm -hmm. um, so what was your take on this book? Shall we discuss the plot? Or I should guess. we just say Jason I... Bourne with powers? Lady Jason uh, we Bourne. Have, we have two protagonists, Abby Palmer and Dean Logan. Uh, Abby used to be a veteran in the army, and she, now she suffers from a PTSD and not willing to admit it. And Dean, his father, was like a domestic terrorist guy who killed FBI agents. Hmm. And they both sort of come together when it turns out that they're connected to some deep modern-day MKUltra-like conspiracy. As one which, does. Which turned them into like super killers, super agents. Yeah. So here's the thing. It sounds like the board identity with powers, and that's pretty much what it is. With, with I guess, a dash of the Manchurian candidate, if you really want to go there, but not. That's kind of a stretch. Like, I can see what you're, what you're going with with that, but it's like... Eh. Yeah, Abby's story is pretty much the Manchurian candidate, which was the inspiration for Jason Bourne, so it makes sense. Yeah. But 
it doesn't transcend the synopsis, right? No. Now, I will say this. It is fast-paced. It's not one of those, wait till the end of the issue to discover their secret agents. No, no, no. We discovered by page one and by page five, they both had their little mini crashes. And by the end of the issue, they're together on the run. See, that was actually one of my biggest problems with the issue. I think that Kittredge mm. might have been trying to do too much. Mm. Like, if you look at the overall... I'm not going to spoil, like, specific plot in, uh, plot moments here, but there are at least three covert operations happening here at the same time. Yep. You've got programmed sleepers. You've got a secret agent posing as a girlfriend. You've got superpowers all of a sudden. All of this crammed into, like, one issue. And I'm thinking you could spread this out a little bit. Because there's a lot going on, and it was just really, like, you have to stop and catch your breath. And again, like, it's the born identity scenario. So on the one hand, there's too much going on. On the other hand, not one word of this was unpredictable, right? Mm. Like, as soon as you got into the point where one of the, the target that this Black Ops network is going after has some kind of telekinetic powers, and then... You know, you have the sleeper agent who gets the message and, of course, does what he does. And then she doesn't remember and he doesn't remember. And this one's father. It's, and then, after, like, while all of this is going on, you find out that there's a completely different organization that is also, like, the, the thing with the girlfriend. She's like, oh, I've gotten too close to him, but I'm an analyst. And I was like, what, you're watching him too? <laughs> I mean, this is like trying to cram an entire season of Alias into the first episode. What, what, what's going on? It doesn't really help that the two main characters aren't really deep, because the kid is like the generic outsider being bullied by jocks. Which really he has look, a green mohawk, Tom. He looks too old to be the guy who gets bullied by jocks. A green mohawk. Mm. Yeah, what, and, what am and, I supposed to do with that? And Abby is basically Warren Ellis cast off tough lady soldier. Yeah, like, she... She even talks like a Warren Ellis character. She does. And you know when I realized that? There's a scene where her friend basically has to force her to come to a PTSD war veteran support group. Yeah. And she spends the entire time being like, my problems are mine. I don't have to talk to you. You brought me here by food. It's like, that is like textbook, Warren Ellis. And I'm so tired of that mold. There's nothing wrong with the notion of a character who doesn't want psychological help. But when you are, com- like, to the extent that you are portraying any other personality at all, it's that. And then on top of that, she's brainwashed. So we don't even know how much of what we see of her is actually her. Because I had no... The the problem with the pacing is that because it keeps going back and forth between the past and the future and her flashbacks and what's happening now and what happened, like, there's a jump to four hours ago in the middle of the issue. And it's like, okay, at what point is she under someone else's control and at what point is she herself? It did not make any sense to me. Uh, the art's nice. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the way... Uh, what's the artist's name? I'm sorry. Stephen Sanders. Sanders. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the way he does faces. The eyes are a bit too big and a bit vacant. But mm-hmm. there are some really nice bits, like when her... When Abby's friend goes mental, and they have this action scene within the briefing room, and you just see, you know, the bullets count riding on one side of the page, and the gun going off on the other side. It's a really nice scene. Yeah. 
It is. It's effective. And then um, there's this classic bit where, you know, the sound effect becomes the image, the blam on the same page. Yeah. Which which is an old trick, but a trick that I really, really like. So. And later on, the action sequence when, you know, Palmer is fighting the people who are trying to pick up Dean. It, it's good. I just, yeah. I just felt like maybe it was a little too compressed because the fact that so much is going on here doesn't distract from how unoriginal the actual content is like you're looking at it it's like okay yeah so it's jason Bourne, except he's a lady which is fine but i've seen jason Bourne. i'm not really looking for to do it again it's jason Bourne, except it's two people and one of them is a lady and one of them is a psychokinetic i guess all right yeah. i mean i don't that that's got nothing to do with me yeah it's, it's not bad but it's not it's not just it's not it's really that so, good. I mean, it's okay. It's the sort of image book that is aggressively average, I would say. Mm. Exactly middle of the line, and really the extent to which you would want to keep reading depends entirely on whether or not you have better books to be reading, right? If you okay. don't have anything better to do with your time, you might as well, but image... Like, this doesn't meet the standards of Image's top-tier books. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Read Cry Havoc instead, which does pretty much the same thing, only with werewolves instead of kinetic people. I would say. Eh. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, next, uh, shall we do Jade Street? Let's. So this is Jade Street Protection Services number one. Yeah. Written uh, by Katie Rex, art by Fabian Lelay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the first of two Black Mask reviews we'll be doing today. Yeah, diversifying. Sure, why not? Uh, the story concerns a an academy called Matt's Daughter Academy, in which the students are magical girls. Yeah. And when I say magical girls, I am not being metaphorical. They literally are the type to stand, pose, transform, and get magic weapons. Yeah, we we we, did, we actually did something like this like last year. There was the Kate Leth series, Power Up. Yeah, Pow- powered well, up. No, power like up wasn't about an academy exactly. Yeah, but I'm saying American versions of the Japanese magical girl. Oh, and, that was um, that was Zodiac Star Force. Yeah, Zodiac Star Force and power up. They, so it's like a small trend, I would say. I guess the, the West finally picks it up twenty years after Sailor Moon. Well, that's understandable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it had to show up eventually. Uh, so, what do you think of this issue? Um, I was really looking for it because it looked really fun from the solicits and it's one of those Black Mask bringing new talents, which is something they do that no other big publisher does mm-hmm. because I have no idea who Katie Rex is or who Fabian Lele was and I always like to be surprised by new voices from outside the industry, which is why this was a letdown. How so? Uh, it's It's a bit like... How you felt about their first arc of Lumberjanes. Mm-hmm. They try to do way too much with the characters. There's like six, seven main characters being introduced. And they're sketched a bit too lightly for me. Even th- even if you have like a whole page of people saying, well, this is girl X and what she's doing is Y. And by the end of the issue, I'm still like, who is this girl X again? You told me, but I really don't remember. And then they jump straight into the plot, which is a bit too on the nose. The big, the big threat that's gonna motivate them. And the art. Okay, I don't have a problem with the character design, I really like it, but there's something about the way this issue is edited that characters seem to just jump from one place to another. I don't have the specific page in front of me, I'm 
looking for it, but there's this scene where two girls are walking one next to another, and then the, the next panel, like, jumps, and then it's the one girl next to another girl, and I'm like, did yeah, they it's move? When, did uh, they sh- it's when they invite Emma to go with them instead of uh, their other friend. And the yeah. final and the final bit of the issue where they sneak around this, uh, what is this, kebab shop, whatever? Yeah. And the headmistress doesn't see them sneaking around. I'm like, this should have, like, a comedy store soundtrack, like, because it doesn't make sense. They're, you know, they're, like, crawling in plain sight behind her in an open diner and nobody sees them? Why? Yeah. See, I... There was something about that particular conceit that I liked. Like, even acknowledging that the girls are flat stereotypes and not much more in the context of this issue, I did feel like there was something charming about it, right? The idea of a school where they teach you how to do the right pose to show that you can transform and use your weapons, and the idea that the girls aren't fully in control of their abilities because there's a scene where um, the, the Muslim student, Saba, she has to go to the bathroom and so giant toilets start falling out of the sky. There was something whimsical about that that I liked. At the same time, you're right that by the end of the first issue, like, I don't know, it was difficult for me to distinguish these characters. They don't really come across very clearly. Part of the problem might also be that the school didn't really feel like a school. Like, you really the, only see the one teacher. Yeah, the world doesn't really work, because how... Is, is this like our world? Is this a Harry Potter situation? Because they have kebab shops, and I, and they specifically say kebab shops, so I assume it's England? Yeah. So, but is this in England? Is this like an alternate reality where magical girls are common? Do people uh, know about them? Because they, they keep sneaking out, but they're sneaking out to avoid like full, the teacher. And in like full weird dresses. They don't care to transform in front of the seller in the shop, so. Right. I don't know. It, it has, I feel like this book has potential. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I am, like, I'm willing to stick around for the first arc to see where it goes. Because, you know, it was, it was very light, I felt. You know, very, um, very colorful, very sort of energetic. Hmm. And to be completely honest, I'm so sick and tired of the grimdark at this point that I think I might be willing to be a little more lenient, but not by much. Right, I would need the next issue to at least start doing proper characterization here to distinguish. And maybe part of the problem might be that Rex is biting off more than she can chew, right? Because she has, what is it? There are six girls here. Yeah. Six protagonists in like a 22, 24-page comic. There's just, there's no room for you to do much of anything, especially since you're competing with basic world building in the first issue, Right. There's no, there's no one else in this world, so to speak, right? Just yeah. like the teacher, the, the, mis- the mystery person that she gets in touch with. I mean, who are the other teachers? What does their curriculum look like? Where is the school even situated? Why are they learning how to be magical girls, right? Like, is, are there threats that they are regularly working against? Yeah, this issue you needed like twenty pages more. It needs to be like double spread, or or, or even or, just like an or opening they call. Need to wi- or they should have waited with the fret, because they j- pretty much jump in from in the first issue for there's this big conspiracy behind the school, which introduced the school and then introduced the conspiracy. Otherwise, yeah, why should I care about it? It's like the only thing you see of the school is the fact that the the six protagonists out of their entire class 
get singled out for detention, right? It's the Breakfast Club scenario. But if the Breakfast Club didn't require you to be familiarized with a weird school, right? It was just an average high school. Mm -hmm. Here, you know, they're sitting in detention, but, you know, we already have seen that they can materialize giant toilets out of (laughs) midair. So, like, there's no sense that the school is in any way different. You know what I mean? It reminded me a little bit of... You remember in Grayson, they had that academy for female assassins, right? Yeah, yeah. But there, you really did get a sense of, like, this is an actual school where they learn all of these different subjects, and they have all of these different instructors whose backgrounds make them appropriate teachers for that particular subject. Here, it was like, I don't I don't know what it is that these girls do. I don't know why they're training for anything. If there had been even, like, an introductory text paragraph or something... Just to be like, yes, this is a world with magical girls. Zodiac Star Force had that, remember? They had like the, the flashbacks to what they were doing beforehand. Yep. That makes sense. Here, like, I don't know why any of this is happening. Um, I'm willing to give it a little leeway, like maybe another issue just to see if this is something that Rex can overcome, but. It's well, a- I, I sort of had to give it a leeway because I ordered the first four issues. So ah. I wonder if it is ongoing because up until now, Black Mask usually done like four or five issue minis and that's it. And well, the sometimes listing- they would do a sequel, but I don't think there's a single Black Mask series that ran longer than six issues. See, I don't know because the, the diamond listing for these, for both this and the next book we're going to talk about, doesn't say like one of six or one of eight. Yeah. So I... It might be that Black Mask doesn't communicate that to retailers. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but in terms of it doesn't, there's no uh, one of eight on the cover. There's no one of eight on the indicia. No. There's no indication. It could be ongoing. I have no idea. Okay, somewhat, uh, we... you know, somewhat average, I would say. Mm. Shall we move on to the next next Black Mask project? Go ahead. Kim and Kim, uh, written by Magdalena Visaggio. Mm-hmm. And drawn by Eva Cabrera, and the two Kims, the two eponymous Kims, are 20-something bounty hunters in a futuristic uh, post-space travel, interdimensional travel type world. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the daughter of the head of the biggest mercenary organization in the multiverse, who sort of quit his outfit because just to spite him, mm-hmm. and because they had a falling out. And they both are broke. It's like shades of cowboy bebop, I would say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they take a job chasing the most prized um, mark in the universe. Unfortunately, that brings them up in opposition to their father's outfit. Yeah, and much like Cowboy Bebop, they may be good at their jobs, but fate has a way of screwing them out of every paycheck, Mm -hmm. which I loved. So, I'm going to be honest with you. I It's funny that there's such a strong thematic parallel here between this and Jade Street. In that, you know, these are women-led titles that are very colorful, very light again. But I think where Jade Street tripped up a little bit because of the lack of clarity and the the failure on the writer's part to distinguish the characters, I think Visagio does a fantastic job of dropping exactly enough exposition to make it work, right? Not just the Cowboy Bebop parallels... But, I mean, the overall package here, this is a book that has space for some meaningful conversation, some great action scenes. Yeah, it opens with the traditional power demonstration scene, in which case the power is beating people up. Yeah, 
and you know arguing about what they're going to call their organization if it's like you know the fantastic kims or the the revenge of the kimchi you know and, but there's there's something specific that i want to focus on here okay for context sake i read this issue the day after i read the dark gem arc on gem and the holograms mm-hmm. and there was an interesting parallel there in gem you find out that uh, Clash's cousin, Blaze, is transgender. Yeah. In Kim and Kim number one, uh, one of the Kims, Kim Q, is also transgender. But there was a difference in terms of how these characters were presented that I thought was really interesting. So follow me on this. I hate to criticize Thompson for this, but I had a problem with what she did with Jem. Well, uh, we should point out that the Jem scene specifically in which Clash came out was written by Sophie Campbell, who is transgender herself. I was not aware of that. She said she wrote a scene and she actually had a... I was following her on Twitter when she had a big argument with somebody over the coming out scene and she was uh-huh. like, maybe I'm not ready to write this and I and I was a bit, you know, on the side. Okay. Are people actually shouting at a transgender person for writing her own experience? Well, that's, okay. That's odd. Okay, so here's the thing. I'll ship the criticism over to Campbell for this specifically. Mm-hmm. And say, there was a problem here. And I'll tell you what it is. In the context of the story itself, Blaze being transgender is such a non-issue that it has no story impact. And what do I mean by that? In itself, it's fine. Like, I can understand why Campbell wrote it the way that she writes it. Which is basically that, you know, Blaze is worried about telling the other misfits... Clash convinces her to do it. She tells the other misfits. The other misfits are fine with it. And that's it. Like, that is the be-all and end-all of that entire scene, right? That is what it means to be transgender in that particular story. Nothing at all, right? Completely normal. All fair and good. The problem is, though, that in that context, Blaze being trans doesn't really mean anything. Like, Campbell doesn't explore what being transgender or whether being transgender has anything to do with why Blaze, for example, is such a huge Misfits fan, right? What does it mean for her to idolize this group of powerful women, let alone what it means for her to actually be one of them, right? There are, there are layers where you could find meaning in Blaze being transgender, but in the context of the Dark Gem arc, it really only exists to show... Like, you have a coming out scene in which everyone says, okay, we're fine with that. The end. Hmm. It's a story beat that doesn't have any meaning. Now, in contrast to that, look at what happens here, right? There's a, there's a conversation here that I love. Uh, the two Kims are talking about their counterparts, right? There are these two bounty hunters uh, who work for Kim Q's father. Mm-hmm. And Kim Q has a scene where she's talking about Sar, one of the rivals, and she says she wonders if things could have been different between them if Kim hadn't transitioned, right? She imagines that, like, it might have been possible for her to have a relationship with him if she had not been transgender. Like, if she had stayed male and gotten involved with him, if it would have been possible. And that was a really interesting character beat, right? Because it raises the question of the point isn't just blanket acceptance, which, again, on itself is perfectly fine, right? I don't necessarily know if Gem of all books needed that moment only because it's so diverse and accepting as it already well, is. Well, see, here's the thing. I think uh, we're talking about Gem in the middle of reviewing Kim and Kim. No, Forgive f- us. No, because I, I want to make that parallel. 
No, because I think in Jam that scene was important because Jam as a book is all about celebrating different forms of femininity and it was important to Campbell to show that this is also a type of femininity. And the fact that she's accepted immediately is just like the fact that, you know, every other female character in that book is accepted for what she is. Because right. this isn't a book about, oh, the terrible difficulties about being a woman. It's, no, a book about, it's a book about how being a woman is different forms of kicking ass, which I think is something that the market needs. It might not have made the most interesting story beat, as you said, but I think it's important as part of the statement of what Gem as a series is. See, okay. that's, like, I, I want to sharpen that a little bit, because... I, I completely agree with you on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also saying I don't necessarily know if Jem needed to re- reassert that point in issue like 13, 14. Because by that point, we had already had like the same-sex relationship between Kimber and Stormer. We had already had... And this was Blaze's second appearance. If you really wanted to establish that as, you know, like the only reason for Blaze to come out as transgender is to say that it's okay, that's fine. But... Look at how different it is when, because Kim and Kim also is like, you know, Kim is very matter of fact about being transgender. It's, you know, the other Kim accepted. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But look at how different it is in terms of how you portray the character's experience, right? Like the fact that there is this nagging thought in her head that she can't resolve, right? Because she's never going to know if she could have had this relationship in a different situation, but it is something that bothers her. And with Blaze, it's like, I'm not saying like I would have wanted the misfits to be grossed out or something. No, that's not what this book is. The whole point of Gem is to be diverse and inclusive. But they have already made that point so clear that I don't know, like, what other scenario could have happened, right? Blaze coming out would not have been met with anything but acceptance. And it makes sense that way. Of course it would. But I feel like her being transgender didn't play into how she was characterized because she doesn't really have any character development. She's brought in as a replacement for Pizzazz because of events that happened in the previous arc. And again, like there are things you could have done with, right? What does it mean for a transgender woman to become the new lead singer of a group that defines itself by all-female membership, right? Hmm. What does it mean for her? It doesn't mean like it doesn't matter to the misfits. They're like she can sing, sure. Why not? You know they don't see her any differently. And what does it mean for Clash? Right, Clash. It was you could feel this tension between on the one hand, Clash is like this terrible person, right? She's jealous. She's this hanger on who attaches herself to the misfits, and she's a sycophant, and she's horribly jealous of Blaze getting accepted. But at the same time, because it's couched in the framework of Blaze being afraid to come out and coming out and finding acceptance, Clash's jealousy doesn't mean anything either. Either, Right? It's mm. like, what is it are you jealous of? Are you jealous of the fact that she got accepted? Are you jealous of the fact that she, her identity is immediately accepted by the Misfits where yours was not? Like, there, there were additional layers beyond just saying, she's transgender, it's cool. And it, that's fine. But you could do more with that. And I think Kim and Kim does do more with that. And that's okay. why I liked it more. Now, I have a problem with Kim and Kim. And it's not a problem of the actual story. It's an expectation problem, I would say. Okay. Because this book sort of promoted itself as a 21st century Tangirl. Not the actual 21st century Tangirl, which was a separate <laughs> theory. But it's, you know, they're shouting punk rock. And they even talk about opening a punk rock bakery in this issue as a joke. And yeah. 
Here's the thing. I don't think there's such thing as a punk rock bakery. And this is a book that shouts the ethos of, you know, go wild and destroy stuff. But it's very tame in execution. Um, the art is just not out there enough. You need, like, a Jimmy Hewlett-type artist to make this work. You need... Uh, uh, I, we were talking before the recording. There's this anime that I really, uh, that we both really, really like called uh, Panty and Stocking. Yeah. Which which is a show about two very violent super bounty hunters in a odd world. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting something a bit more like this because, you know, this shouts punk rock. It's actually a bit of more of a pop rocks type yeah. story. It's it's too nice. At the same time, though, I don't know if I would have been as interested in this if it had been as excessive as Panty and Stocking, right? Well, because that's like really... Like, to, to say that it's punk rock is one thing, but, like, that kind of excess tends to be, like, completely over the top. And well, I, I think, like over the top, you know? I, I go, know. go big or go home, as it were. I, see, I think that the the problem with going over the top is that you run the risk of flattening everything out, right? It ends up being, like, very shallow. And as opposed to something like... Again, like, let's go with the other anime comparison. If you take this and compare it to Cowboy Bebop's more outrageous moments, mm. even there, when they're doing, like, let's fight a giant fat clown or whatever, you never lose sight of the fact that these characters have interiority, right? They have dimensions to them, which is something that I appreciate because, you know, the, the problem with the over-the-top fireworks, uh, completely insane balls-to-the-wall punk rock approach is that at the end of the day, it's a lot of sound and color and noise, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And I think that Kim and Kim has the potential to have that kind of energy and still tell a meaningful story. Um, I'm in it. Uh, I'm, I'm into it. Me but too. I really, I would hope that the next, that the following issues will pro- provide a bit more zest. I mean, the action seasons were fantastic here, I thought. You know, the, the fight scenes with the tentacles and they're, all that. They're, they're okay. It's just, I don't know. It's not wild enough. Hmm. Someone, again, someone like Sophie Campbell or Alexis Zirit or yeah. Jamie Hewlett, you know, somebody who brings in this, because this is supposed to be on a world in which, you know, they can travel to other planets, they can move between realities, but it's all pretty human-like. Yeah, it is. It's not, it's not, it's not as out there, at least in the design sense, as it should be, I'd say. Um... I disagree, but I think, again, like, it's, it's off to a good start, mm. I would say. Um, I'm not necessarily, it's like, it has to do with what you're looking for from this book specifically. I think you're right that there might have been some false expectations built up by the solicitation text, which might have suggested a tone to this book that it doesn't have. But at the same time, like, having read it without, like, I didn't read the solicitation text. I just picked this up off the shelf. Oh, yeah. um, like, I enjoyed it very much for what it was. Um, if it continues along this route, I think I'd be happy with it. Because it has just enough depth to, and again, like, in contrast to Jade Street, right? Uh, you cannot say that you don't know the Kims by the end of the issue. Oh, yeah. Well, they had a lot less to work with uh, in terms of character. They had, yeah. like, two main characters and two antagonists, and that's yeah. it. And the the kid, right? The, per- well, the target yeah. that they are chasing after has a little bit of characterization, too, right? The whole idea mm. of, right, this this transgender woman coming up against a shapeshifter. That's, mm. that's an interesting premise. We'll see where they go with that. Okay, so that's Kim and Kim, and shall we go on to our patented trade review? Let's. What have we got? Well, 
Uh, it's not a trade because it's uh, it's Boom Studios, so the trade will be out in a year's time or something. Eventually, we we we're gonna review the recently finished uh, miniseries The Spire issues one through eight, written by Cy Spurrier with art by Jeff Stokely. Mm-hmm. And the idea is this takes place in like a futuristic alternate universe. Uh, I don't know Earth in which most most of humanity lives in. Well, we see one city. I assume there are others, maybe not. Um, well, there's sort of, there's, there are settlements, I think, yeah. of other, but this is like the yeah, main the, city. Yeah, uh, called the Spire, in which, uh, which is divided to like different levels and bureaus, and the closer you are to the middle, you know, the higher you are in stature. Mm-hmm. And there are regular humans, and then there are the sculpted or skews, if you're rude. Mm-hmm. And they're basically like mutant tribes. They have sort of different powers mm. and appearances. The implication not... seems to be that they were genetically modified to serve mm. as, like, servant races, and now they are more... Yeah. Well, not equal per se, but they're not slaves. Yeah, most of them live outside the city in their different areas and tribes, but some of them are are allowed to immigrate into the city as long as they serve a role. It's very important to the normal humans that the, that the skewed do their bit. Yeah. And our hero is Captain Shay of the City Watch. Is it Shay or Shah? I, I assume it's Shay. Shaya? Ugh, there's a uh, weird, sh- like, little accent over the A. I don't know what that means. Okay, we'll say Shah. Whatever. Okay. And she's like half, uh, she's like a squid person. She has like little squid tentacles coming out of her back. Mm-hmm. And she leads the City Watch. And she's in a bit of a bind because the new Duchess, is it? The Baroness, yeah. Yeah, the new baroness, the new ruler of the city is like her father. Hella racist. Yeah, she really hates the skewed and she says, well, you're either useful to me in my grand scheme or you're not. And all of this comes around as there's this uh, serial killer running around killing people who all were connected in this specific but not really exposed way. Yeah. So. So. Sean, what did you think of the fire? (laughs) I think that it's time we stop giving Simon Spurrier chances. I'll be mm-hmm. honest with you. It's like, what's become abundantly clear to me here is the man has good ideas. I won't lie, he he does. You know, if you boil this down to the most basic premise, there's a really good idea here. And on top of that, he has a tendency to pick artists that can really bring out the best of those ideas. Oh, yeah, Jeff Stockley's art, if nothing else, it's spectacular. It's one of the best-looking books we had all year. Yeah. But I can't say that for all of the ingenuity of his ideas that they make for good stories in themselves. They're just not fun to read. I'm reading this miniseries, and I don't know if it was a problem of pacing or if it was a problem of a lack of context or if he does that thing, which this is not the first time he's done this, where the man keeps doing like flashbacks and flash forwards without ever telling the audience which is which. So you have no idea what's happening at any given time. Here's a reveal of what this character was doing 20 years ago, but it's also what happened five five minutes ago, and it's also five minutes in the future. And it becomes so hard to follow the logic, you know, especially when the, the big ideas have a tendency to skip over any sense of pacing when it comes to characterization because like who are the main characters here so you have the baroness who is a stick figure right she's right she is racist the end like you could not make a clearer hitler parallel if she had the mustache 
you had the mother who's one of those she's so nice so and because it's a mystery there's obviously something there right? yeah there's because a secret she's too nice it's like what is the secret and then she tells you the secret and that's not actually the secret there's another secret and you have like there are specific moments here where Spurrier manages to pull off a good twist right like mm-hmm. the identity of Shah's lover or in fact the identity of Shah herself because naturally Shah also has amnesia right on top uh, of everything else I think the big problem I had is that there's hints of something interesting in the world building, but when you actually think about how the characters operate within the world, it doesn't really work, because Sha is the captain, but we don't really see her captaining. She's responsible for one investigation, which she does by herself with two or three, you know, she has one lieutenant and one, uh, like, messenger demon thing. Yeah, and she's constantly and being told, like, this is not your jurisdiction, this is not your authority, like, the Baroness... What, what, what is her jurisdiction, then? I don't know. Like, she... When the murder mystery begins and she starts tracking the serial killer, the the new Baroness, right, like, this, this Hitlerella, or whatever we're going to call her, explicitly <laughs> tells her, butt out, right? And it's like, okay, but if this is not her job then why is she so invested in it? And if it is her job, then why is she not getting any respect or any assistance from other people? It just did not. And like the the deputy yeah, that she only, has... Only in the least, last issue does it appear that she has other people working for yeah. her, right? When she summons the other guards. Before that, she's, she's by herself. Or, or like she's not necessarily by herself, but like the person that she's working with most closely is the little... Um, the, the flying goblin... Yeah. And it's like, okay, but these, you start off by introducing them as a joke. And then it's like, no, he's her deputy. What? How does that work? Mm. You know, it's just some very... Well, there's milk. Well, not, there's a character called milk. Not, yeah. There's milk. Yeah. But milk is defined. <laughs> no, but like no, milk, drink milk. Milk is defined by his, milk is like the, the rookie cop in any cop drama that mm. means well, but doesn't know what he's doing. Right? Yeah. And that if he is left to his own devices, will only screw things up. Which is a type. And I, like, I understand why he's there, but it just, there was something so off about this. And I keep having the same problems with Spurrier over and over and over again. There's always this lack of clarity. And it's not, like, there are certain story types where a lack of clarity can be useful, right? There's a certain, you know, if it's a dream logic thing, if it's a mystery, if you're doing like hardcore science fiction that deals with like inception level dream traveling or whatever, there's a level where lack of clarity can benefit you. Here, like the comparison that I kept going to was like when you see the spire and all the different aliens, it reminded me so strongly of Brandon Graham's prophet. Hmm. And yet for all the, for all my personal disinterest in profit i can at the very least say that he did a better job of explaining the world i i thought actually about that science fiction fantasy book series by uh, china mayville uh ba baslag baslag yeah 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 it's a bit it's a bit like that yeah. and but the world building there worked better <clears throat> because there was a sense of investment and i wonder if it's a matter of the actual mystery is really not that interesting to me if if they just showed the world a bit more, you know, showed the characters working and living in this strange futuristic city that Jeff Stokely, you know, bless his hands, draw his heart out. Yeah. Uh, you know, let, let, 
let it feel a bit more organic because the mystery is just not that interesting. And you you always fall back on the problems of if Captain Shea has memory problems, how did she become a police chief? Who 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 decided that she should be it? Someone who doesn't know her own past. How and why? And I mean, I, again, like it, it is so frustrating for me to say this because the twist with Shah was brilliant. It really was. It was genius. And it, it was set up quite early. Yeah. It was very good. Because it's the, one of those, wow, really? You're going there? Okay. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. But the problem is by the time you get to that point, I don't know how you would still be invested in Shah's story mm. at all. It's like, okay, so by that point, it's just like, are we done yet? Because the mystery's been over for like 20 pages. Uh, yeah, so, there, and there's, you know, there's a lot of themes going around here about racism and immigration and culture building. And it's which so on the nose. should be interesting, but they're a bit too on the nose, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I think Spurrier has a problem, and this has popped up in so many of the other books. It, it, when he wants to make a point through allegory, mm. like, the man just doesn't know how to be subtle. I don't know if that comes from, like, his background in 2000 AD, or <laughs> if it's a skill that he hasn't... No, really, like, it's... House of Subtlety 2000 it's AD It's just is. not a skill that he is any good at. And you see this so often in, the, in his other works, where the high concept is fine, but when he wants to make some kind of point through allegory, like, for example, here you have the whole racist system of the spire itself and what's going on with all the different races and how they're treated, and then... You know, he's not going to do it subtle. He's going to be like, here's this new baroness who is already talking about how she's going to send all the skews to die. Like, in her first appearance. And I'm like, well, okay, so what exactly... Racism is bad. We knew that. Like, what else What else have you got? Yeah, I ended up thinking about the other uh, Boom miniseries we reviewed earlier this year, Toil and Trouble, mm-hmm. which was another beautiful book with a lot of interesting ideas that never really coalesced into anything. Yeah. And at the very, at least and then. And, and, and the Spire is not awful. I think it's a pleasant read. And if nothing else, again, just for the art alone, but it should have been so much more. It could it's have like been. A, it's, it's like a 6 out of 10 book that should have been a 9 out of 10 book. See, I would, I get what you're saying. Like, Toil and Trouble fails, but at the very least you can say, like, if you were to describe the premise and say, I'm going to tell you a story, I'm going to tell you Hamlet, the story you think you know, or Macbeth, sorry. I'm going to tell you Macbeth from the perspective of the three witches. That's something that hasn't been done before. So on that level, at the very least, I'd be like, you know what? I want to see that. Here, like, how would you boil down the premise here? It's a murder mystery in an alien city on something that may or may not be Earth. I don't even know, right? And there's an ancient conspiracy involving an age-old mystery and a serial killer running around. Literally, none of this is unique to the Spire. Right, You could take that exact description and apply it to any of half a dozen books that we've reviewed in the last year. Mm. At the very least, if I say Macbeth through the perspective of the witches, it's like, okay, that book failed. But at least it did something that in one sentence I can show you why it's unique. Well, I don't I don't have a problem with the high concept being just a bunch of ideas uh, connect, not, you know, not presented as one line, but... I have a problem with the execution of it because I didn't yeah. feel this world. I felt this world through the art, not through the characters and writing, which is a problem. Maybe if, like, if the murder mystery had not been 
part of the story, or if it had only turned up in the second half of the miniseries, and in the first half, just explored the city. Because they spend so much time with the Baroness's mother and her flashbacks, and it's mm-hmm. it's the sort of flashback where you don't see the whole thing, you only see it in, like, chopped up pieces throughout the entire miniseries. Because it's meant to be, like, clues to the solution, which no one would have guessed, right? It's... It's like, okay, that's not in itself interesting enough to keep people's attention. You had this amazing setting that you came up with, right? And you have an artist who is really, really good at creating all of these different types of aliens running around this city. Why could you not make it more about that and less about the cliche of, you know, the serial killer who's killing people who were involved in this cover-up 30 years ago and you know what the cover-up is and you don't know what it is. For what? And on top of all that, you have this subplot about religious zealots that have a super weapon and nothing happens with that. Like, it ends up, it's a story that ends up eating its own tail. For what? Yeah, it's, shame. Yeah, shame. It's, it's always, I. on the one hand, I want to respect Spurrier for his ambition, but this is a person who never consistently manages to make the most out of interesting ideas. He always falls short. Always. It's frustrating, you know, because like so many writers today in the industry are just mediocre and that's all they've got, right? Like you don't even see the potential in them. It just is what it is and you learn to accept it. Spurrier is someone who, and we have said this about him before, right? That he, he always comes close, right? He's always within like a hair's breadth of creating a really interesting story and ends up falling flat on, like, technicalities, right? On the well, fact that like, you I, don't I, know how to I, build... I, I really like Weavers. It only had two issues out, but I really like it. So maybe it's the one... I think maybe it's a problem of over-ambition. I mean, listen, really? even Weavers, you remember, like, we were reading that and we were like, the, the well, notion of you, these people... you didn't like it. I really liked Weavers. But I mean, but would you not agree that Weavers, like, the, the mob aspect of it was so typical? Well, it was yeah. so predictable. Right? The whole idea of, oh, there's this guy, and maybe he's a plant for the FBI, and maybe he's not, and now he has to prove himself. It's like, yes, all of that is old cliche that we don't need. The notion that they all have these spider powers was a lot more interesting. But Spurrier, I think this is what it is. He always focuses on the wrong thing. I think that is, like, if you wanted to pinpoint what the deal is with Simon Spurrier, is that he always comes up with, like, a, a combination of mundane and highly interesting ideas and he always chooses to focus on the wrong concepts right on the things that if you develop them further you only end up with cliche you only end up with predictability whereas the things that would have made the book unique tend to get set aside and that's that's a real shame Mm. I don't agree totally but I agree in parts I can't recommend this but I, I can't I can't I can't drop him because he's always there's always something interesting there, and I think that there there is the the great you know Simon Spurrier series in the horizon. It could be Weavers, it could be Cry Havoc. It's not it. We, it's would not you it. recommend the Spire to other readers? I wouldn't. Uh, if if you're an art friend, if, because there you know we we're more into the writing bits. But if you're the the kind of a uh, guy, girl, whatever who who likes to look at interesting art pieces. The spire is that. Jeff, 
for Jeff Stokely alone, you know, the Spire's recommended. I guess I can stipulate that much and be like, you know, the man draws some really, really fine art. I would not call that a valid excuse to buy the trade if it ever comes out, but, you know. This was just another ambitious failure, and I'm I'm tired of those from Spencer. I I prefer an ambitious failure over a mediocre success any day. Well, if it's if something's mediocre, then by definition, it's not a success. Uh, you know, but something <laughs> you know, all, there's so much, there's so many things in comic book and American comic books that are you know they're fine. You no, know, it's readable, it's pleasant, but they don't try to do anything interesting with it. Yeah, you know, when Spurrier fails. He fails because he tried too hard, and, you know, I, I can't begrudge him that. Not too much. The only reason I can begrudge him that is because, like, at the end of the day, you're still following his stories, you know, you're still following his single issues and the expectation that he might deliver, and he never does. And I agree with you that it's possible that at some future point he might get there, but he's not there now, and it's like, I don't know if I want to stick around for another five or six projects where he keeps disappointing me in the same way. Uh, so I guess that's it. That's the Spire. Yeah. A grim futuristic tale and in a grim comics. <laughs> a yeah. grim review, as I, it were. I would have to say that of all our reviews, I mean, I really, really enjoyed Kim and Ken. It's a book that I am, like, by the end of the first issue, I knew that I would be sticking around for its entirety. That, w- yeah, that Kim, would be my best of the episode. Yeah, everything we reviewed uh, for this episode, Kim and Kim, is the best, I would say. Yeah. And kudos to Black Mask. I mean, I, I hope it sticks around. I know that Black Mask tends to be a little... Scheduled being shy? Yeah. Like, it, it's hard for me to blame them because they're so new, but at the same time, if you have this kind of content, you have a responsibility to put them out on time. Like, yep. people will want to read this. So, uh, this was the Smorgasbord. All previous episodes can be found on Seekboard. Yes, they can. And uh, we have a Facebook page in which I upload them, so you can, I don't know, like or share or whatever, whatever it is you kids do. You kids and your (laughs) old-fangled, new-fangled technology stuff platform media. I'm I'm still with Teletext, so (laughs) I I would know. Oh, also, I am now on the Twitter, at Tom Shops. Oh, God, you you went to Twitter. I went to Twitter, so if you want to tweet at me, you know, that you hate my reviews or whatever, go ahead. I'll, I'll be there. Tom, in the words of John DeLancey, may whatever God you believe in have mercy on your soul. So this was the Smorgasbord, and up until next time, bon appetit. <laughs>